Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're entering a new era of data mining in healthcare. It's a slow launch in many respects, but in time, access to all kinds of health data is going to make consumers far better informed. Well, the federal government has released a new five-star rating on home health agencies across the country. And of the 9,000 ranked, uh, only about 240 received five-star ratings, about 200 receiving one-star ratings for their service. This guide is so important, Margaret, as we continue to see aging population reliance on home health agencies to monitor and care for loved ones. Well, last year, Medicare spent about $18 billion on home care services for some 3.4 million Americans. And Mark, as you note, with 10,000 Americans turning 65 every day, these numbers are just going to grow. Good home care is far better option than costly care in long-term facilities. And over time, this is going to provide a great opportunity to allow the elderly to age in place. Well, we do want to know if these ratings were based on a number of criteria. Now, there's, there's still some problems in the home health care arena, so this ranking system I think will provide a better opportunity to hold agencies accountable for the care they deliver and really recognize the outstanding providers. You know, for our listeners, they, you can find all of the relevant information on Medicare's home health care compare website, and there are listings from all 50 states. And our guest today has a job of ensuring the safety and health and well-being of people living in all 50 states of the country. Dr. Tom Frieden is the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's tasked with protecting Americans from epidemics, from infectious outbreaks, as well as promoting prevention policies that protect the population's health and well-being. Dr. Tom Frieden is considered a groundbreaking public health official, having initiated policies that have reduced tobacco consumption, harmful trans fats and food production and controlling epidemics like tuberculosis and Ebola. Really looking forward to hearing his thoughts and new agenda items. And of course, Lori Robertson will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Dr. Tom Frieden in a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Alaska has become the latest state to capitulate to the health care law and expand Medicaid. The state's governor opting into the Medicaid expansion, which is funded by the federal government for the first three years. Against the objections of the Alaska legislature, Independent Governor Bill Walker decided he could no longer reject the government's offer of funding, which will allow an estimated 42,000 Alaskans to gain coverage through the Medicaid expansion. Twenty states, mostly in the South and Midwest, have refused to expand Medicaid for more of their residents living closer to the poverty line. Obesity rates have risen among teens. That's nothing new, but there is something new about their perceptions of the condition. A recent study showed while more teens than ever are obese, about 35 percent, they are less likely to see themselves as such, which makes targeting the condition a tougher task for clinicians attempting to persuade them of the need to shed pounds. Turns out for many in the population, overweight is the new normal, and it's changed the perception of what a healthy body mass index looks like. And bringing reusable bags to the grocery store may be good for the environment, but maybe not so good for your waistline. Study of purchasing habits of reusable bag users shows they were more 
likely to also buy treats. The findings from Harvard Business School and the Duke School of Business analyzed more than 2 million trips to a California supermarket and conducted experiments to determine whether the act of bringing reusable bags actually changed behavior. And they concluded it did. The thinking is they feel more righteous about buying organic and being more environmentally conscious, so they unconsciously reward themselves. And feeling frustrated at work? Well, maybe you should sleep on it. A study of healthy adults sought to test the efficacy of napping as a stress reducer. All participants were given orders to get several good nights sleep. Then all were given tasks to complete that were designed to be impossible to finish. Some in the group were ordered to watch calming nature programming to break their monotony, while others were given an hour during which they had to nap. The nappers came back to the task less easily frustrated and staying, on average, much longer on the task than the non-nappers. University of Michigan study appears in the journal Personality and Individual Differences. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Tom Frieden, director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention since 2009. Prior to that, Dr. Frieden served as commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, where he launched groundbreaking public health campaigns, including a successful tobacco control program and another to eliminate trans fats from commercially sold food. Dr. Frieden initiated a tuberculosis control program in India, which has saved an estimated 1.4 million lives. An internist and epidemiologist, Dr. Frieden received his undergraduate degree from Oberlin College, his master's of public health and medical degree from Columbia. Dr. Frieden, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Great to join you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you know, and I think our, our listeners uh, well know of the role that the Center for Disease Control plays in protecting public health and safety. And you were appointed by President Obama in 2009, became the 16th director of CDC after it was restructured under your predecessor to sort of confront the challenges of the 21st century's health threats. Can you share with our listeners what you see as the biggest health threats we face today and what are the biggest hurdles we face in confronting them? There are a series of things that we're addressing to protect Americans 24-7. One of them is drug-resistant bacteria. We're seeing an inexorable rise in the proportion of bacteria that are resistant to some or in some cases all antibiotics. And that's a real problem, not just for people who have infections, but for core medical care. If you need a kidney transplant or cancer chemotherapy or even treatment for arthritis, all of those things are commonly complicated by infections. And if we lose the ability to treat common infections, we can undermine much of modern medicine. That's why uh, right now we're focusing on better tracking and reversing the increase in drug resistance. Another is reducing risks to the U.S. that arise from around the world. Drug-resistant bacteria are one, but MERS, SARS, Ebola, uh, HIV, or the next HIV, or others. And we're now increasing our ability to help other countries track threats and stop them before they spread here. Tobacco continues to kill almost a half a million people in this country each year. The opioid epidemic has increased the number of people it's killing, Mm -hmm. and we can make so much more progress by doing simple things like making sure that blood pressure and cholesterol are adequately treated. Well, Dr. Frieden, you've noted that we've got to keep an eye on public health if we're looking at the nation's health and safety and foster strategies that can be put into play today 
that positively impact health and well-being of the greatest number of lives into the future. And you've, you've conceptually organized this around four quadrants that underlie what will drive health and safety in the 21st century. What kind of technology and partnership is required to achieve the success that we're seeking in combating these really very pressing public health problems? We think of infectious diseases and non-infectious diseases and those that arise in the U.S. and those that arise globally. And that delineates the four quadrants. So if you think about infections in the U.S., we still have drug-resistant bacteria, HIV, hepatitis C. Uh, Antibiotic resistance is something that we've been working across government and across the public and private sectors to try to address. There was a White House Uh, forum on this recently with more than 150 commitments, real commitments, from companies, from organizations. Mm -hmm. It means better use of antibiotics, understanding that if you go to the doctor with uh, a cold, Mm -hmm. antibiotics aren't the best treatment, and uh, antibiotics have both risks and benefits, and you shouldn't take them unless the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. You know, you encountered this uh, in, when you were commissioner in uh, New York City uh, during the dramatic increase in drug-resistant tuberculosis infections, and you, you set out to tackle that health problem. You ran into Dr. Steblo and realized you may have been looking at it from that perspective. Can you share with our listeners a little more about the experience uh, that you encountered and, and the change of strategy that you came to? I was, by chance, assigned to be the CDC-assigned disease detective or epidemic intelligence service officer in New York City from 1990 to 1992. Drug-resistant bacteria was spreading rapidly, particularly tuberculosis, and it was spreading in hospitals among HIV-positive patients, but also to healthcare workers, to a prison Mm -hmm. guard, and this was a a real crisis. Mm -hmm. There were two things that really helped turn it around. The first was improving infection control in hospitals because too many hospitals were allowing tuberculosis to spread. And it wasn't from patients who were diagnosed. It was, by and large, from patients Mm -hmm. whose tuberculosis hadn't been diagnosed. The second was, as you mentioned, Dr. Carol Stieblow's intervention. He emphasized a key point, which is it's not enough to focus on the care of individual patients, though you have to do that. You have to focus on how you're doing overall. Be accountable for every single patient who's diagnosed. And that simple concept that Dr. Stieblo pursued helped us control tuberculosis and drug-resistant tuberculosis in New York City and has saved more than 10 million lives around the world. That's the kind of concept we need to use throughout our entire healthcare system of all of your patients with Whatever condition it is you're trying to address, what proportion of them have been successfully or effectively treated? We don't do that enough in healthcare. I just want to just spend one more moment because it is so important on this issue of antibiotic resistance and because for such a huge public threat, unlike a baby HIV or tuberculosis, I just don't get the sense that the the public has gotten sufficiently concerned about it. So when you describe those 100-plus people gathering at the White House, including the professional associations and, and I'm sure uh, health safety and maybe some consumer organizations, what are the strategies to educate the public or to motivate the public to make a change that contributes to reducing this threat of antibiotic resistance? What is the role of consumers and the public in helping address this problem? We've had a terrific partnership with Consumer Reports 
and we see a number of patient advocacy organizations. Uh, sadly, many of them are headed by family members of people who have died huh, because of inappropriate or excessive use of antibiotics, the Peggy Lillis Foundation, uh, for one. Uh, these are individuals who uh, died either from the complications of antibiotic use or from drug-resistant bacteria. I do think we're seeing the beginning of a sea change in our perspective on antibiotic use. It's understanding that we have to preserve what we have or when we really need them, they won't be available. We've also seen tremendous differences in the rate of prescription around the U.S., with almost a threefold difference in the rate of antibiotic prescribing. But we did see over the past decade or so nearly a 25% or 24% reduction in antibiotic use for certain conditions. Mm. So we are seeing some things go in the right direction. This is something that everyone has to be part of. Doctors need to understand that Patients also need to understand that demanding an antibiotic may not be demanding the best treatment, mm-hmm. may be demanding a treatment that could be harmful or ineffective. We're speaking today with Dr. Tom Frieden, director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Frieden, let's look at another one of those 21st century threats that caught the attention of the world community, and that was the deadly Ebola epidemic. And Take a look at the larger picture for our listeners about the global health epidemic. And we've had your colleague, Dr. Arjun uh, Srinivasan, on the show during the epidemic talking about the CDC's response. Maybe walk through a little more about the uh, epidemic itself. But what is the CDC doing in terms of helping strengthen so many countries who really aren't prepared to manage these public health epidemics that happen? We're only as safe as the weakest link in the world's ability to find, stop, and prevent health threats. A tale of two outbreaks. When Ebola hit Lagos, Nigeria, a city of more than 20 million people, and a crossroads for Nigeria and Africa, because we had a robust polio response system, we were able to put 10 top epidemiologists into the field within a few days to redeploy 40 Nigerian doctors who were trained as disease detectives to establish a incident management or control system run by an experienced manager. And although there were 19 secondary cases, that team was able to create a treatment unit in 14 days, identify about 800 contacts, do 19,000 home visits, Hmm. establish control systems in two different cities when a patient fled to a nearby city named Port Harcourt, and stop the outbreak. Ebola could well have spread through much of Nigeria and much of Africa. Mm. And if that kind of system had been in place in the West African countries, the last uh, year or nearly year and a half would have looked very, very differently. Mm. And it re-emphasizes our need to strengthen the weakest link with core public health systems. What that means is laboratories to diagnose new infections, disease detectives to investigate them, response capacity to rapidly go into a community, figure out what's happening and stop it. It's not nearly as expensive as implementing an entire health care system, but it tends to be harder to get support for mm-hmm. because it's not so visible. And when it's successful, it's particularly invisible. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Frieden, there's been another uh, public health 
crisis, and you touched upon it briefly a few moments ago, and that's the just dramatic increase in the use of heroin, in uh, opioid addiction, and in death by overdose. And your department just released a dramatic report on this, on the doubling of overdose deaths in recent years from opioid abuse. You've made some recommendations to the healthcare community, uh, which issued over 250 million prescriptions for highly addictive opioids in recent years, and uh, noting that that has contributed to the boom in heroin addiction as people seek to be able to uh, replace those drugs. What are some of the ideas that you find most promising in addressing this really enormous public health uh, problem? It's actually not so unrelated to the problem of antibiotic resistance. It relates to both the risks and benefits of every medication and the need to treat not primarily symptoms but primarily causes whenever possible. We have got the balance wrong when it comes to prescription opiates. These are dangerous medications. Mm -hmm. They're highly addictive. Take a few doses and you can be addicted for life. And they're highly dangerous. Take a few pills too many and you can stop breathing and die. It's just horrific that we've lost 150,000 American Mm -hmm. lives to prescription drug overdose in the past decade. And there are very specific things that can be done. First, improve prescribing. Second, improve access to uh, medically assisted treatment. And third, work with law enforcement because we have to reduce the supply of addictive drugs and that will reduce their utilization. That means checking with prescription drug monitoring programs, understanding that if as a physician I'm about to prescribe a medication to someone who's never had an opiate before, that's a momentous decision. Mm-hmm. And that should only be taken if the benefits clearly outweigh mm-hmm. the risks. And for most chronic pain syndromes, that's not going to be the case. Dr. Frieden, you've spoken eloquently about changing the structure of society to encourage people to make healthier choices. And two great examples of this have been your efforts in New York City to uh, reduce smoking and eliminate trans fat consumption in commercially sold food. And you had the support of uh, Mayor Bloomberg in those early efforts. I want to talk a little bit about that uh, combination, if you will, of uh, public health knowledge and political leadership, uh, how important that is. Uh, so that we can bring to the forefront uh, the information that hopefully will engender uh, individuals to make these healthier choices. Also want to talk a little more about tobacco. And I hope at some point you take a deep breath and look at the implications that that tobacco cessation program had in New York City. I was listening to a report about Ireland. Probably would have never changed if New York City hadn't, (laughs) hadn't done this initiative, you know, just all over the world. It's still a very difficult road to move. We saw the uh, Chamber of Commerce were out there around the world supporting tobacco consumption. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of things in the water there. But talk a little bit about the partnerships that you've uh, had to forge. There's sometimes a, a misconception that things are either individual responsibility or they are uh, social responsibility. And a lot of things are both. Individuals need to take responsibility for their health, and society needs to take responsibility for making sure that if you just go with the flow and you do what is natural and most people do, you will not get a preventable disease that might kill you early and cause a great deal of suffering. With tobacco control, what's so striking is that we actually know what to do. Hmm. We know how to drive down tobacco use rates with public policies. And that's why I believe that what any government does for tobacco control is as good as any other indicator of the 
competence and commitment of that government to its people. Hmm. We, we know that governments that have implemented tobacco control pro- policies have dramatically reduced the amount of tobacco used in society. Unfortunately, the tobacco industry continues to come up with new ways to get kids hooked, hmm. whether that's flavored cigars or uh, other th- mini cigarettes or mini cigars, other ways of getting around regulations. And that's a challenge. Uh, because nicotine is so addictive and because at least four out of five people who started smoking started smoking when they were kids. But we know that running hard-hitting ads like the Tips from Former Smoker campaign Mm -hmm. saves thousands and thousands of lives. And unfortunately, um, in the congressional and the House uh, proposal for the CDC budget, there's a massive cut proposed Mm. in CDC's tobacco control budget that would not allow us Mm -hmm. to run the TIPS campaign in the future. The result of that would be thousands of preventable Mm. deaths of Americans. But around the world, uh, the Bloomberg Foundation has been able to promote tobacco control policies in a way that will prevent more than 10 million Mm -hmm. deaths in the years to come. So not only is tobacco the leading preventable cause of death in this country and around the world, but it's also the one we can do the most about. Mm -hmm. And you've uh, also made a great contribution in providing the evidence base for the implementation of programs for tobacco cessation and prevention within primary care and at the community level, so we're very appreciative of those efforts. You know, I I know we only have a few more moments, and I wonder if I can turn our attention uh, maybe to an area we haven't talked about. And as I look at your background and your uh, education and training, certainly the incorporation of your uh, master's degree in public health uh, figured prominently in the work that you would then go on to do. And and as you look uh, at the generation of healthcare providers uh, coming of age and into our system, uh, certainly physicians, also nurses, nurse practitioners, what do you see about our success and our work in providing them with the kind of education and training in public health principles that it would seem, I would think you might agree, every provider of healthcare services needs to have, not just those who specialize in public health. They're going to really be effective uh, in primary care in particular, but also in the other specialties. Any, any thoughts on how well we're doing with that or how you would restructure things if you could in healthcare professional education and training? An epidemiologist is someone who loses sleep over denominators. <laughs> and I think that That's primary, a great care, quote. <laughs> primary care physicians will be much more effective if they think about uh, at least their entire patient panel and ideally the whole community that they live in. It's not enough to do a good job for the patients who happen to come through your door. You need to think about who hasn't come back for a visit. You need to look in a registry-like focus on uh, what your impact has been and not be afraid to ask the tough questions. Mm -hmm. How much good did I do? How many lives did I save? Because by asking those questions and coming up with a feedback loop that gives you the answers ideally every month or at least every quarter, you can rapidly improve outcomes. And that will also drive primary care practitioners to working with the entire healthcare team, making sure that every person is practicing at the top of their license, that you're making optimal use of pharmacists, PAs, nurse practitioners, nursing staff. In uh, the work that I've done in uh, tuberculosis, for example, we were able to get people with just a bachelor's degree trained in how to monitor the effectiveness of tuberculosis treatment, including what regimens are used. And because it was the only thing they did, Mm -hmm. uh, they were much more consistent at Mm -hmm. doing that, even than some of the pulmonology specialists Mm -hmm. in New York City. 
Similarly, uh, when we helped New York City reduce tobacco use rates, we had operators at the 311 public information line learn how to follow a protocol and decide which over-the-counter medications to provide for patients who are trying to quit smoking. So uh, thinking about your entire impact and using the entire team to maximize that impact are two critically important things. We've been speaking today with Dr. Tom Frieden, Director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. You can learn more about their work by going to cdc.gov or by following Dr. Frieden on Twitter at Dr. Frieden CDC. Dr. Frieden, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Lawmakers of both parties have made misleading claims about the government interfering with women's ability to get mammograms. The claims stem from new draft recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, an independent volunteer panel of primary care physicians and experts in preventive medicine. The task force examines peer-reviewed evidence and makes recommendations to help doctors and patients make decisions on preventive services. The task force's latest draft recommendations on mammography are virtually unchanged from its 2009 recommendations. They recommend biannual mammography for women ages 50 to 74 who are not at high risk of breast cancer. For women age 40 to 49, the decision to have a mammogram, quote, should be an individual one. And the task force says there was insufficient evidence to evaluate benefits and harms for women 75 and older. The recommendation for women in their 40s was controversial to some lawmakers and cancer groups who recommended yearly mammograms. These are simply recommendations, but there's a new wrinkle in how they impact the Affordable Care Act. The law ties the task force's recommendations to requirements on insurance companies to cover certain preventive services with no cost sharing. If the draft recommendations become final, insurers no longer would be required to cover annual mammograms for free for women age 40 to 49, a requirement that went into effect in 2010. That doesn't mean that insurance companies wouldn't cover mammograms. The ACA's requirements are minimum standards, and plenty of insurers covered mammograms for 40-year-old women before the ACA, but with co-pays. Some of the claims we've seen misplace the blame for a change in insurance requirements on the Preventive Services Task Force, which doesn't issue any kind of insurance mandate. Instead, it was lawmakers who added a provision to the ACA tying the task force's future recommendations to coverage requirements in the law. That's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. 
Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control, such as IUDs or implants. What was so striking was the word of mouth amongst these young women to each other and the network of support that was built to access uh, this program through these clinics And to help the tens of thousands of women over the course of the four to five years really did then result in um, these significant decreases in unintended pregnancies and abortion. Dr. Larry Wolk, medical director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. He says the results were nothing short of astounding. The resultant decrease is 40 percent plus or minus in, in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, over these four to five years. When you extend this out over an additional year to more than 50, even approaching 60 percent reduction in um, those unintended pregnancies and abortions. And the results showed there was a significant economic benefit to the state as well. We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids uh, applying for and, and needing public assistance, whether that's public insurance whether that's through the WIC program. And in spite of what conventional wisdom might lead one to assume, the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases dropped in this population as well. We've been doing background surveillance uh, of our sexually transmitted uh, diseases here in Colorado. And amongst young women 15 to 24, we've seen a decrease in sexually transmitted infections. Many other state health departments are already consulting with Colorado on the successful outcome of their experiment. A free, long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies, leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes for all involved. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.